So for me, it's it's actually much simpler to talk about actually full stop security, whether it's zero trust or anything else, in terms of what this will do for your business and your bottom line. Those are the, those, you know, as, as a C-level executive, those are the discussions we should be having with our senior management because they don't care. You know, at the, at the end of the day, if I went into and, you know, when I went in and presented to the board, what the board wanted to know is, is what are you going to save us in terms of money? How are you going to de-risk the business? And actually, the nuts and bolts of what you need to deliver are you know, they're yours because that's why we employ you in your job. So, you know, tell us what it's going to do for us. Tell them, tell us how much it's going to cost us and how much it's going to save us and what the risk is. Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of the SSE Forum. The SSE Forum brings together people like you, the IT practitioner, who are conquering the biggest challenges in networking and security. Together, the members of the forum share strategy, uncover requirements, and discuss best practices for enabling the modern workplace through security delivered at the network edge. To learn more about the SSE Forum, go to ssceforum.com. IO. This podcast is sponsored by Access Security. Access Security secures the modern workplace. They make access to resources and applications impossibly simple and completely seamless. Take the Access 29-minute challenge. See how easy secure application delivery can be. Learn more at accesssecurity.com. And now, on to the podcast. Today, we have Paul Simmons of the Jericho Forum joining us to provide the business imperative for Zero Trust. It is a great conversation and covers a lot of history. Securing nuclear facilities? Oh my. Enjoy the show. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another special edition of the Edge podcast. Today, I'm here with Paul Simmons. Um, welcome, Paul. I guess I, my initial question for you is, I'd be really interested to know in, in kind of how you started off on your, your IT career, your security career. How did you get into it? What were your interests and, and kind of what kicked off that journey? Uh, totally by accident. It wasn't designed. It just sort of happened. Um, I think like a lot of people in the early days, to be fair. Um, so I, I did a degree in electronics. I um, worked in theatre lighting. Um, in the early days of microprocessor-based theatre lighting, um, working at uh, the sort of the chip level, and um, from there, eventually wound up working for an organisation called Jet. Uh, Jet is the joint European Taurus. It is the uh, world leader in nuclear fusion, um, and it was a strange environment because no one had ever done it before. And therefore, everything was new and everything had to be built from scratch. Um, and 
I think that stood me in really good stead. So, you know, from a world where I started, which was theatre lighting, where literally I did field service, um, you were used to walking into uh, environments like uh, I walked into the BBC at Belfast and they said, uh, we have no lights and we go live with the news in 10 minutes. And it forces you to think on your feet very, very quickly in terms of how you solve a problem. Um, from there, I said, I, I, I ended up, um, I worked, I did a couple of years in North Sea Oil um, with subsea control systems um, and ended up doing seven years with JET doing nuclear fusion or the IT end of nuclear fusion um, and the electronics. And that was an environment where, because none of it existed before, we had to build it. Um, and it was the norm that here's a problem. How do we solve it? Now go build it because you can't buy it off the shelf if no one's ever done it before. Um, and as part of that, we got involved in the very early days of the internet. Um, so at that point, uh, the scientists obviously were connected on this, what, what ended up being called Janet, uh, the Joint Academic Network, but wasn't then. It was just basically sort of an extension of a few universities on it. Um, and because we had scientists from all over the world, the scientists at JET wanted to share or share talk to their other scientists initially. So we uh, got a 64K leased line, which cost us an arm and a leg. Um, and that allowed us to do email. I had the world's shortest email address, ps at jet.uk, um, because there weren't second level domains at that point in time. Um, and that worked really well. And then they said, there's this thing that's being developed at our sister lab out at CERN called uh, the World Wide Web. And we all went, what's the World Wide Web? So we got to do a day trip out to CERN to talk to the folks out there who explained what the World Wide Web was. Um, and we came back and we implemented our own web server so that the scientists could upload their results and share their results with their colleagues around the world. Then they said, actually, what we want, because at, back in you know, so 92, we were generating half a gigabyte of data every time we fired this reactor, which was a lot of data in those days. So the scientists wanted direct access so that they could analyze it themselves. Um, and they said, look, we'd like to uh, connect the, uh, the data gathering system to the, the nascent internet. Um, and we all went, mm, experimental nuclear fusion reactor connected to internet, probably not a great idea. Um, so from that, we developed, um, had to, you know, you couldn't buy firewalls in those days because no one made them. Um, but we worked in this environment where, look, you just took the theory and built it. So that's what we did. We took the book on the subject from, uh, you know, Firewalls Repelling the Wiley Hacker, the original book on the subject out of AT&T Bell Labs. And we took a Sun 5 and TCP IP toolkits and we wrote our own firewalls. Um, and we had five of them in what we then called the onion skin model, um, increasing layers of security as you go in. And um, we wrote on the outer layer of this onion skin model a, um, an, a very early um, web server um, so that we could share the results with all our scientists around the world. Um, and as you say, the, the sort of from there, the rest is history. Uh, because from there I got poached, you know, obviously there weren't that many people doing security at that level at that time. Um, so from there I got poached by Motorola um, and, you know, the rest you can see on LinkedIn.
Yeah, that's quite interesting because I, I mean, I went to university, if I remember rightly, in 92 and Janet and Super Janet and the internet were very, very new. I mean, I remember spending hours and hours and hours writing Hello World or something similar on a, on a website in probably Netscape, I think it was at the time. And, and we had some Sun 5s and, and I, I remember security not really being a thing i mean we had passwords for our accounts at the university but it was very new and, and it kind of exploded i mean i remember going from having a modem at home and then i i went on to work for and i've said this before on a podcast i went in my first ever job after university was supporting the game quick and that's what really got me into into networking and, and not so much security because it didn't exist then but the whole concept when I was in, in my final year of university, when I should have been writing a dissertation, was to run a network through the house I was living in so that we could all play Network Doom and Network Quake through, through the house. And, and then I went on to work for the company and supported Quake and started a clan and played Deathmatch and then upgraded my modem to, to ISDN at a, a huge cost. So it's funny how people have like, backgrounds that started off that long ago I mean I don't like to raise I, I John would always laugh when I say we've been in IT 50 years between us but fundamentally the people starting out now where security is more of a thing I, I guess there's a, a bigger risk now than there was back then because although there were hackers in the early days of my career, there were no networks in businesses, or if there was a network, it wasn't connected to the outside world. And when it did connect to the outside world, they put in a very kind of easy to look after firewall that probably anybody could have broken into, like the cars back then. Um, and I think nowadays the risk is so big because so many more people are doing it, and, and we've kind of evolved from having firewalls on premises to, to, to be in more complex attacks. But I think we'll get onto that in a second. I, I guess my next question is really about the Jericho Forum. I mean, I've said to you before when we met in person that I have a, a, a rough idea of, of what it means and, and kind of where it came from. But I'd really like to hear from you a bit more detail about that, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. So. So from, I mean, in terms of sort of my personal career trajectory, I went from Motorola and did seven years with them um, as part of the, the, you know, the security team globally, but also running um, cellular infrastructure as their, what you would now call a CISO. Um, you, no such thing as a CISO back then. Um, and and from there, I went to, I went to uh, a high security web hosting startup six months prior to the dot-com bubble bursting um, and fairly quickly transitioned to being uh, the first real CISO for ICI, Imperial Chemicals Industries. So for the Americans on this, the third largest was, at that point in time, the third largest chemical company in the world. Um, and there we started sort of looking at real business problems. I mean, the internet was taking off huge amounts i mean when i left motorola i think we've been we've been putting about two terabyte uh through our firewalls um back in the late 90s um so you know the internet was really starting to ramp up um and 
With ICI, it was much more a case because it was a real CISO role at a corporate level that we started to look at business problems and also started doing the speaking circuit because obviously security was starting to take off. And so at conferences, you talk to the other CISOs out there, and there weren't that many of us in those days. Um, you know, So we would talk about what problems we were seeing, what problems we were facing. And actually, the biggest problem we were facing was that the vendors wanted to sell us bigger deep packet inspection firewalls to shore up our borders. And actually, the business was saying, you're the boys that like to say no. Because we were saying, you can't do that because you need to do this, that and the other. You need a DMZ. You need to spend lots of money, et cetera, et cetera. So you had this, this conundrum between security and business is security wants to secure it. But actually, the business is saying you're inhibiting us. You're saying no the entire time. Or I want lots of extra money to say yes. Um, and so we started to look at this as and and. So talking after these conferences with, with our peers, we were all seeing the same problem, except we were seeing it. And I describe it like the uh, the very old parable of the the, five, the three blind men and the elephant who come across an elephant in the jungle, if you're familiar with that. So, you know, the first grabs his leg and says it's a tree. The second grabs his tail and says it's a snake, you know, the, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we were all describing what was effectively the same problem or the same root cause, but we were describing it in our local business terms, depending on what business we were in. And so we started discussing, you know, what we should do about this, because if this was a common problem, were there common solutions? And it started as a supper club, um, especially where we could get vendors to pay for it. Um, so when someone interesting was in town, normally London, but not always, when someone interesting was in town, then if they had a budget, especially, we'd get them to pay for supper and we'd all sit around and, and discuss the problem over dinner. Um, and we got it to the problem circa 2002-ish, late 2002, that actually there was a problem. And yes, there was a big disconnect between the vendors trying to sell us bigger deep packet inspection firewalls and what our businesses wanted us to do. And so we said, well, actually, shouldn't we be doing something about this? Um, and, you know, we all had full time day jobs, so we didn't want to do huge amounts. Um, but we thought, actually, the way to do this is to actually agree amongst ourselves what the elephant, can we describe the elephant? Can we, can we, the CISOs, describe the elephant in common terms such that we can go out to the vendors with huge amounts of security budget between us because we were talking, you know, sort of 10 or 15 of the global 100 um, and say, if you build this, we will buy it. Um, in the, in the in the thinking that actually it took then about three years to get out of the R&D lab into something you could buy. So if we wanted to buy it in three years time to suit our business needs, we needed to be influencing what was in their labs today. So that was the, that was the concept uh, behind Jericho. And in about 2002, we sat down in Cisco's executive briefing center in uh, in Feltham near Heathrow, um, round the table with all of uh, these invited CISOs and said, we don't want to do this. We'd much rather throw our lot in with someone who's already doing it. And we looked around and said, but no one else is doing it. So we better step up. And the Jericho form was born. And, and 
hence the name, because, you know, it was all about blowing the trumpets and the walls, the far walls will come tumbling down. So, you know, that's that's where Jericho got its name from. And we then started on a series of work. And Jericho was really interesting because the way we worked at it was very much an, it, an iterative problem solving. So first of all, we said for the, at least the first six to nine months, no vendors, because we don't want vendors coming in, skewing the pitch with this is my product. This will solve your problem. So we sat for about six to nine months without vendors to define the problem and literally said, so what are the principles by which we should be operating in this new paradigm? Um, and what we did is we came up with a set of principles, started off about 20 um, and gradually whittled them down. And what we did is we we wrote them down and we threw business our business problems against them to see which ones were valid and which ones weren't. And gradually over time, we whittled them down and we got them in the end to 11 principles. And because we were Jericho, we called them commandments. Um, all, always annoyed me that we never got it down to 10. We only made it to 11. And we got them onto two sides of A4 because, look, we were all C-level executives. And we all know the truth that actually senior management never reads beyond one page of A4. And if you're lucky, you'll get to two pages, but never beyond that. So the commandments literally are on two sides of paper. That's it, all 11 of them. And, and the interesting thing is looking back, you know, 20 years now, there is, there is, because they were principles, they're as relevant today as they ever were. In fact, probably more so. And, and from there, Jericho then took a um, sort of, strategic direction and what we actually drew up internally it, we eventually published it as a paper which is a paper called the you can go onto wikipedia and, and google um go onto wikipedia and look for jericho forum and all the papers we produced are there and indexed um but we produced a document called the business rationale for for what we called deperimeterization in other words you your perimeters are becoming less and less useful as a security boundary you are becoming deperimeterized. So, yeah, a bit of a mouthful. The Americans never quite got it because, of course, we spelled deperimeterization with an S rather than a Z. Um, but anyway, that was uh, that was by the by. And we drew up this graph called deperimeterization over time. So and we looked and sort of drew the line. Um, a nice linear line. It wouldn't actually be linear, but for, for research purposes, it was linear. And we said, so what does this mean? What does deperimeterization over time equate to and allow you as a business to do? Because ultimately, we wanted to be the boys that said yes, rather than the boys that said no. And we started to look at what that would mean. And one of the things very quickly we said, actually, if you don't have a perimeter as a security boundary, you might still have it as a quality of service boundary. But if you don't have it as a security boundary, then actually it doesn't matter where you do your compute. So now you can do what we called computing outside your perimeter. Now, as we all know, three, four years later, the industry started calling this thing cloud. And again, another word that actually I think I 
Computing outside your perimeter was a much better way of explaining it to people. Trying to explain to Joe Public what cloud is, is, uh, is the same problem you have with zero trust. Um, so, yeah, we, we had this thing. And, and again, we did a whole bunch of work on computing outside your perimeter. And then along came um, Cloud Security Alliance, or the early days of Cloud Security Alliance, and Jim Revis and the crew over there. And, um, you know, we went back to our first meeting at Cisco and said, look, if someone else is doing this, we don't want to do it, we'll throw a lot in with them. And that's exactly what we did. We literally dumped a whole bunch of research work that we had done into what became version one and version two of Cloud Security Alliance guidance. Um, and if you can pull in a, a version that's old enough and compare the original papers, you'll find there's there's a huge amount of Jericho work in those documents. They've obviously evolved um, over time. Um, and then we continued up the line in the uh, the 10 years that Jericho existed. Um, we threw our lot in with Open Group uh, because this thing got so big that it needed some form of management behind it. And I said, we all had day jobs. Um, so open group who obviously are committed to open source and everything else. And that's the one thing that we always said is anything Jericho produces will be open source and creative commons. We did not want to get into, you know, the, the craziness we have with, uh, ISO standards where you can only read it if you're going to pay a hundred bucks or whatever. Um, we wanted the industry to have it. So Open Group were very committed to the whole concept of Creative Commons and open source, and therefore they become we became an Open Group forum. They became our de facto managers and provided um, a really great guy um, called Ian, who actually was our sheepdog and kept us all in order and arranged our meetings and made sure we published and delivered against timelines and you know all of that good stuff. Um, and again, a lot wouldn't have happened without his hard work um, behind the scenes. And we then continue to move out that line. Um, so, you know, once you've got cloud underway, as, as the industry then called it, we then said, well, you know, so what's next? What is stopping us? What is missing, if you like, from allowing us to work securely and seamlessly outside of our, with, without borders, effectively, without perimeters? And, and the Two last problems we tackled circa 2009, 2010 is when we started it, was one which was how do you manage data, how do you secure data in an environment you don't control? And the second one was how do you manage identities when you don't control them? And the first one, we did a, a couple of papers on it and some background and said, look, this is what we need as, as organizations. But actually turned around and said, actually, the industry's got a pretty good handle on this. And, you know, we got homomorph homomorphic encryption coming and a whole bunch of other really neat, you know, crypto stuff happening. And, you know, the early days of, um, you know, not Bitcoin, but, you know, that, that whole, the whole uh, movement in terms of uh, distributed databases and, and crypto and that mix. Um, and the other one, which was the identity one, which we said, and no one's got a handle on this. Every attempt globally at doing some form of large global identity system actually has failed miserably. Um, it either implodes into a subset 
um, that is just used by government or it just explodes, it implodes very expensively and fails a la the UK's two attempts now at uh, some form of government-run global or, or national identity system. Um, and that work continues today. So that work has transitioned into the Global Identity Foundation, which I'm heavily involved with, um, looking at actually how we fix that problem of can we do global identity um, so that we can deliver on the promises behind particularly zero, what we now call zero trust. It's um, it's amazing the foresight that your you and your team had at Jericho Forum of where the industry is going all the way back into you know the early two thousands. Uh, to see, you know, there's a potential for the rise of cloud. And then, uh, you know, obviously what we've seen over the pandemic is the distributed workforce. Um, can you talk a little bit about zero trust? Because it's kind of considered more of a security uh, area. When, when we talk to businesses, it's usually the security folks that come to the table and say, hey, you know, we want zero trust. Um, oftentimes they don't bring the rest of the crowd, the network folks along, the business folks along. Um, I'd love to hear your, your, your thoughts on uh, how, do we, how do you engage a business, a, a group of people on how to start a zero trust journey? I think the first thing is not to use the zero trust word. I mean, ultimate, ultimately, you know, my take to be to be deliberately provocative, since this is a podcast, is to say zero trust as a term is complete BS. Um, it doesn't mean anything. And actually, the trouble is it means totally different things to totally different people. So, you know, if, if you talk to if you talk to uh, John Kinderweg um, and, and what he originally talked about as zero trust, which was very much a network problem and a network solution, you talk to Google um, about what they've done with Beyond Corp. Um, originally, um, and you know, you talk to then Jericho, who you know, if you if you like, didn't call it zero trust, but a lot of the you know, every, everyone quotes Jericho as being a lot of the foundational work for zero trust. Then, actually, a lot of it is diametrically opposed in terms of where people have come from, what people's attitudes are, what their experience is, what they're trying to solve. Um, so. For me, it's it's actually much simpler to talk about actually full stop security, whether it's zero trust or anything else, in terms of what this will do for your business and your bottom line. Those are the those, you know, as, as a C-level executive, those are the discussions we should be having with our senior management because they don't care. You know, at the, at the end of the day, if I went into and you know when I went in and presented to the board, what the board wanted to know is is what are you going to save us in terms of money? How are you going to de-risk the business? And actually, the nuts and bolts of what you need to deliver are, you know, they're yours because that's why we employ you in your job. So you know, tell us what it's going to do for us. Tell them, tell us how much it's going to cost us and how much it's going to save us, and what the risk is. And that's it. And we and we should be looking at it at that level. So so for me, zero trust is about how you enable a business to work faster, cheaper, quicker, simple as. Um, and as we've all seen, those those businesses actually that moved to a deprimatized zero trust environment pre-pandemic actually are the ones that generally are the real winners out there out of out of you know post pandemic they they're the ones that had first mover advantage 
Um, and I, you know, you can think of lots of examples, whether it's, you know, companies, I can think of one large British bank um, over here who my prediction, well, my guess was they had a very large estate of voice over IP um, that was all in-house. And, and you know, beautiful call centre, everyone working in-house, everything else. And of course, you know, the pandemic happened, you had to send everyone home. And they were they were totally on the back foot because that just wasn't extensible out to an internet delivered service. Um, you know, where, whereas on, on the other hand, in January 2020, I moved, you know, just a bit of pro bono work. I moved a very little charity that uh, that runs locally here in uh, in Beaconsfield um, from their fixed landline British telecom, very expensive system to an in the cloud voice over IP service for them, uh, for their help desk. Um, and guess what? Pandemic hit. We gave them all soft phones. They went home and just worked and it made no difference whatsoever. So. You know, there are lots of examples of of actually, if you get this right, if you get the, the zero trust concept, the the deprimitized working, the working from anywhere, um, you know, it's it's it. If you look at um, if if people haven't found it, uh, Google um, RSA and Beyond Corp, um, and there is a really good um our presentation they did about four or five years back um which is with rory ward and heather atkins um doing it and it and it's really good and, and one of the things you know they say on that video is we do not care whether you're working from home from starbucks from the airport or from the google campus the security model is 100 identical yeah, it's funny because, or not funny, but I, I left a, a global manufacturer to, to come over to Axis. And there are several reasons, but one of them was I, I, I wanted to pay back to people with flexible working because I thought people's work-life balance needed to be improved. And, and some of it was so much like a human element. Um, and I felt IT teams and security teams are here to enable the business, but they're also here to make things more efficient. And, and, and I've, I'm a firm believer that if people are happy, whether they're directly like under me in a team or whether they're in a business, if they're happy and they've got flexibility, they generally put in the effort. And I was really concerned with companies not having the technology in place to enable people to work flexibly and therefore calling them in because they hadn't deployed the technology. And part of the reason why I joined and part of the reason why I do these kind of podcasts is to, to help IT teams and security teams be able to get technology into their businesses to be able to give people kind of that flexibility. And I know that sounds like may, maybe socially aware and maybe IT people shouldn't be like that, but that's kind of the, the stance I take. And I, I know John kind of mirrors that. So one of my concerns is ransomware and cyber attacks and all of these things are growing and growing and, and now you've got all these people sat at home and i was very lucky in, in or, or maybe not lucky but i i came from a global manufacturer and we had deployed cloud void systems we had deployed um not we we weren't using azure aws the things like that but we were 
Office 365, we, we'd started to put things in the cloud. Obviously, being a global manufacturer, there are legislation, we did military stuff, we did defense stuff that meant that stuff had to stay on-prem, but we had literally deployed a, a, a zero trust or remote access product using ZT um, a month before. We were in proof of value, literally has the pandemic hit and we went from POV to live because our previous remote access tool went up and it. So I, I, I mean, I'm not, in touch with as many people as I guess you are in the industry, but where do you think the split is between people that have kind of taken the journey or are or, or taking the journey, because I don't think the journey ever finishes, versus where are people in regards to the ones that you just talked about that still have VoIP systems on-prem and systems on-prem and literally are hanging out there with legacy VPNs that are really struggling? What, what do you think that split is? I want to I want to add a little bit into that. If you can kind of give some guidance to folks that are struggling uh, to implement this uh, this uh, I think it's a a concept, uh, not a solution uh, within their businesses. Um, what would you what advice would you give them to help them get over the barrier so they can get these projects moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I well, first, I first I would echo to them your your sentiment just now that zero zero trust is not a product. It is it is it is a journey. It is um, an architecture. It is a business enabler. It it is at best going to be multiple products within your business. It is, and you know, the nice thing is that there are some pretty decent products out there in this space now. So you can go out and and enable your business. The problem is, I think you have to be very careful um, to say, we're going to boil the ocean. You know, the temptation is the vendors come along and say, well, I'm going to put this in. And therefore, that means you're going to need my product on every single endpoint. And I used to explain to people that when I worked for AstraZeneca um, as, as, as CISO, we had... Uh, IBM Global Services, who did our endpoints um, management. And if I wanted to change the, the software on that, it would cost me 50 bucks a pop to, uh, to touch it. And then you factor that, that I had 137,000 uh, 137, active endpoints within the organization. Do the math. Um, you know, even if you give me the product for free, and the engineering resource to actually do, you know, the stuff to implement it on my site. Even then, it's going to be impossible to get that kind of budget out of my business to touch every endpoint. So, my my take would be, uh, and it, you know, it, it's the usual: uh, pick your battles big enough to matter and small enough to win. Um, which was uh, I don't know whose original quote that was, but uh, I had a very uh, I had a very um, insightful uh, CIO uh, called Carol Smith when I worked for Motorola, and that was one of her quotes to me when I was when I was a, a young security person, um, and very much a case of work out where your quick wins are. Um, work out what you can do at least cost for the biggest bang for your buck um, and prove it from there. And generally, I would say, you know, 
if you're going to tackle a big organization or even a medium-sized organization, work out which systems are critical to your operation and start there. You know, those are the ones you want to enable. Um, work out, talk to the business and work out which ones are causing them the greatest pain, especially if it's a case of we can't get through that bleeping firewall. Um, or you're telling us we need to spend X to put in something into a DMZ. Um, repurpose that money and do it properly with, with a zero trust-based solution and actually deliver value to the business. You know, the, the biggest one for me is, is, is cross-collaborative working. Every major organization out there, every large major organization out there does huge amounts of collaborative working. You know, we work with joint ventures. We worked with third parties. We work with, you know, what people call fren frenemies. Frenemies, yeah. Frenemies yeah. translate. People who are both both friends and enemies. Um, you know, and it's really important that you need to be able to collaborate securely with those people on, you know, and whether it's mergers and acquisitions, which are, which is a big one, if you can get in on that, that's a great case study. Um, but, you know, mergers and acquisitions, divestments, all of that stuff that goes on with your business is causes huge amounts of grief. Um, so, the, you know, the challenge is, can I set up a collaboration between five equal size partners and not have to have them all enroll on my identity and access management system so we can make the zero trust stuff work. And the answer is today, actually, with a, with a couple of minor exceptions, no. There are, if you, you know, you said we're not talking about product. I have discovered at least one product out there that the answer to which is yes. Um, and, you know, the challenge is, could I have that shared infrastructure, that shared server, if you like, sitting in a, a public data center in China? Because if you can't, it isn't zero trust. You having to trust something somewhere. So, you know, the, the acid test questions that you should be asking yourself about these solutions is, can I have the infrastructure sitting in China? Can I have... Um, you know, enroll people that actually aren't on my identity and access management system as equal players in this in, in this environment. You know, those are the kind of thought trains you should be going through to say, is this truly zero trust? Because actually what you end up doing is doing an awful lot of compromise. And and that's where we are as an industry with this stuff. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with compromise, but understand where you're compromising and what it's going to do for your business and and cherry pick those solutions i the other thing i'd i'd add to that of obviously with my sort of you know ciso strategic hat on is don't cherry pick too many disparate solutions because <laughs> and otherwise you end up with a complete mess and nothing interoperates so actually what you need to do is is actually think about that as a little bit more strategically and perhaps pick your I don't know, at Astra, we always used to say what we called the critical set, the top 20 systems that were share price affecting. Um, you know, can I take the top 20 systems and I can I look at a where they are in their refresh cycle? Because that's the other thing that affects things. Because actually, if you can hit, you know, if you've got something that's six months away from a refresh, can I affect that refresh? Because then it's a freebie from a budget point of view. 
Um, has it just started in it, you know, post refresh? In other words, it's three years plus from when they're next going to do it, in which case, actually, I'm going to be saying it's a pain in the backside if I come in and say you need to change it all. Um, so you need to sort of chunk it up and think strategically about, you know, which are your top five, top 10, top 20 critical systems? Where are they in their refresh cycles? What business pain are they currently giving the business in terms of what would the business like to do with them that you're saying, or you or IT are saying, you can't do that, and then take it from there. And almost, you know, that should, hopefully, if you do that thought, that sort of paper exercise, define what you hit first, second, third, and fourth. And then look at what you need to do. And actually, can we do something common as a strategy for all of those systems that will enable the business for, you know, the, basically the same price? So what I'm hearing a lot is um, this isn't really a security project. It's more of a, a, a business project. So you've got to align the business with the outcomes and, and make them aware that uh, this isn't about securing an asset. It's, it's really about enabling the business. Uh, going from a position of no to a position of yes. Absolutely. So I, uh, I'm aware that we're getting close to our time limit here. So I've got a question that we've asked everyone as part of this podcast series. And it's to do with the younger generation kind of getting into cyber. I mean, I know where my journey started. You've told us where your journey started. I know where John's journey started. So if you were... The younger version of yourself, let's say you were 20 years old now, 25 years old, and you, and you were interested in getting into, let's say, security or cyber or zero trust or whatever we want to badge it at. How would you advise your younger self to go about it? Is there any specific kind of documentation, training, etc.? How would you kind of, looking down on yourself, would you say this is kind of the path you should take? I don't know, particularly. Um... Because it, the world has changed. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I grew up in an environment where we made this up as we went along. We, we invented it. We built it. If it, wasn't, it was, if it wasn't available, we talked to people and said, can we get this? Can we make it? Can we influence your product? Um, so, you know, these days, absolutely, you need, you're going to need to do a, probably a, a, you know, relevant qualifications because otherwise businesses really aren't going to touch you. Um, you do get some enlightened businesses out there, to be fair, but not many. Um, because, you know, getting getting through uh, human resources um, is, is pretty difficult. Um, something, something I learned very quickly when you, um, very early on um, in my late 20s, when we were looking for a couple of engineers and we had about 150 uh the curriculum vitae's k or resumes if you're american came in and you know piling on the desk and we said how do we get through these and we said well the first one is do they have a relevant degree and we literally went through the pile saying relevant degree non-relevant degree relevant degree non-relevant degree and whittled it down to 50. so you need to at least pass the uh the sniff test if you like um, and unfortunately, I think today that means relevant qualifications. Um, you know, it means you're going to miss some really good people. And that's not to say there aren't other ways to get into this industry. Um, but you're probably going to have to be creative. Um, and, you know, there are there are places that you can do it. Black Hat is is one. 
Um, if you've never been to Black Hat and certainly DEFCON, if you've never been to DEFCON as, as a security personnel, you really should go. And it was really interesting that um, they they did a uh, they do they always do a panel called Meet the Feds, and it was really interesting. They, the last time I was there, they had thirteen of the U.S. federal agencies represented, and basically they were all sitting up there saying, "We're recruiting." Because if you're at DEFCON, you know about this stuff and you're probably the best of the best. And therefore, we are recruiting. So there are other ways into the industry um, for particular you know, skill sets, if you like, particularly the sort of the, the white hat hacker. Um, but other than that, uh, relevant degrees. Uh, there are some really good degrees out there. Um, there are some really bad degrees out there, I have to say, um, having looked at um, the a couple of people who said, could you just look at my, you know, my dissertation or whatever? And I'm going, ah, no, this is, uh, yeah, this is 1990s. They're teaching them. They're not teaching them for 2000s, let alone 2010s. Um, but hey, so do your research, speak to a lot of people, pick your courses with care. Um, if you're an American listening to that, you have to do your CISSP. You can probably unlearn most of it once you've got it because most of it, again, is 1990s technology. And the principles they teach you are, a lot of them are fundamentally wrong for today's zero trust environment. But hey, it's a piece of paper. And again, it's that sniff test if you're going for an American job, but nowhere else in the world. It is uniquely American. Certainly in the British industry, we, do, we don't give two hoots about CISSP. It's a, oh yes, they've got CISSP, big deal. Um, so, then work out what interests you at the end of the day. That's the biggest advice I do. So, so if you've never done it, um, Myers-Briggs, really interesting. Uh, I'm a great believer in Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs, they do a careers. Effectively, it's a reverse Myers-Briggs. They do your Myers-Briggs type. And then they say, people of your type go into these careers and these areas. Um, and... It's really interesting <laughs> and scarily accurate as far as I've seen it. Um, so I would say do a reverse Myers-Briggs to work out actually what floats your boat. Because if you enjoy the job you go into, you'll enjoy life a hell of a lot more. Um, you know, the last thing you want to do is, is you know, go into senior management when you're, you want to be a hacker. Uh, because you'll just hate, you know, you might get paid well, but you'll hate your life. Don't do it. Um, you know, do what you enjoy. Um, you know, I'm I'm lucky enough that, you know, my loves of uh, making things work and fixing things. Um, and, you know, if you like blue skies thinking and strategy, um, you know, so you could probably argue, especially my Myers-Briggs type, that actually about a third of all, you know, C-level managers are my Myers-Briggs type. Um, so, I found a great niche. I've had, you know, I've had a great career and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Um, but if it's not for you, don't do it. Do something you enjoy. This podcast is a production of the SSE Forum. Editing and post-production is provided by John Spiegel. 
Sound engineering is expertly conducted by Chris Danby. Food recommendations? Solely the territory of Jay Tilson. Thanks for listening, and give us a follow on LinkedIn, as well as on Twitter.